Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today's case comes from Leicester and is, I think, quite extraordinary. It's a tale of deceit, an attempted scam and sickening violence, which leaves us with many questions. But before we get going, can I just check that you've bought your ticket for the serial killer talk with me and top author Geoffrey Wansall in London on the 26th of March. If not, head to the events page at uktruecrime.com and buy yours now. As let's face it, you're not going to be able to buy me a beer afterwards and share Rochdale sauna anecdotes if you aren't there. As always, I would like to say a huge thank you to my wonderful supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Barbara Johnson, Maureen Taylor, Ian Brown, Sarah Edwards, Claire Derry, Gillian and Alex Neves. Thank you so much for your support, which is, as you know I hope, always so much appreciated. Before we get to today's story, let's set some context by checking out the music we were listening to on October the 29th, 2016. Top of the UK charts was Megan Trainer with All About That Bass, keeping Jesse J and co from number one with Bang Bang. It was hard to avoid those two, wasn't it? In the US, top of the pile was The Chainsmokers featuring Halsey with Closer, and the Australian album charts was topped by The Secret Daughter, songs from the original TV series by Jessica Moreboy. Never heard of it. Like horses, just an Australian thing, I guess. This was the month that businesswoman, Kim Kardashian, was robbed at gunpoint of £10 million worth of jewellery in a hotel in Paris. We were enjoying, if that is the word, the presidential debates between Trump and Clinton. Four people were killed on a theme park ride at Dreamworld in Queensland, Australia. And Diane James quit as leader of UKIP after just 18 days in the post. And finally, the government eventually approved a third runway at Heathrow Airport. Today's story comes from Leicester, a city of around 350,000 people which you drive past on the M1. It's about 100 miles northwest of London and is, of course, the setting for the fictional diaries of Adrian Mole, created by Sue Townsend. I loved those books growing up, didn't you? 40-year-old Promise Unlove was married to Christina and lived in the city with her two children from a previous relationship. Christina, like Promise, was originally from Zimbabwe and chairperson of the Leicester-based Zimbabwe Action in Solidarity drop-in centre. Football followers will recall Christina's brother, Peter Unlove, who played for Coventry City between 1991 and 97, when they were decent, well, relatively, and he was the first African player to star in the Premier League. At the time of today's story, Peter was managing a club in South Africa, but he'd experienced hard times himself, especially four years earlier, when he was left fighting for his life after a car crash in Zimbabwe, which killed his brother, Adam. Promise and Love was close with Zimbabwean expats, and on the 28th of October 2016, he met up with three of them in Leicester. One of these was 47-year-old Elvis Keswa, who had known Promise since they were teenagers together in Zimbabwe, and they'd also spent time together in the UK. They both lived in Derby and then Coventry, at various times since arriving in England just over a decade ago. 
But today was no social occasion. They were here for business. They were interested in buying some land behind a house in Leicester, which was for sale for £90,000 and had planning permission to build two homes. It looked a great deal and offered the opportunity to make some good cash. They wanted to partner with three local businessmen on the deal and headed to meet them at Leicester's Capitol Building in Charter Street at about 1.30pm. It was there they met 35-year-old Ramandeep Daywal, who ran Unitech Builders from the Capitol Building. He was accompanied by his business associate, 57-year-old Kihar Heyer, who was a director of Unitech Builders and co-owned the Capitol Building. Also there was 37-year-old Kuldeep Happy Singh, a builder who worked for Kihar Haver. But it wasn't a straightforward deal. This wasn't a case for lawyers, legal contracts or bank transfers. The Zimbabwean men didn't bring the necessary cash for the property deal, not in the way you would expect. Instead, they had a large bag of black paper in the shape of sterling notes, which they claimed would become real money worth £30,000, and this would be their stake in the joint property venture between the two groups if it was treated with a special chemical. The men from Leicester were suspicious, and rightly so, as it was a scam. Wouldn't you be? But greed, as we know, it makes people ignore their instincts. Have you come across this con before? It is sometimes known as a black money scam, a black dollar scam, or a wash-wash scam. Essentially, the con artist attempts to fraudulently obtain money from someone, by promising them that the piles of black banknote-sized paper is actually money. The scammer will persuade the victim that the notes are black because they've been dyed, and that a chemical process can reverse this. When the prospective victim becomes suspicious, or starts to have doubts, they are invited to inspect the heap of money. The con person will often encourage the victim to pick a note at random, and through a slate of hand tricks, they will switch the victim's chosen note with a genuine one before washing it with a chemical. The scammer will then ask their victim to pay various fake fees, as well as to buy large quantities of a chemical to remove the dye. And this was just what happened here. A classic scam straight out of the movies. The Leicester associates remained dubious, but were persuaded that Ramandeep Daliwal should travel to London with the men from Zimbabwe, and £15,000 of his own money, in cash, to buy the necessary chemical. But they insisted that Promise and Love should stay behind at the Capitol building as security with the other two men. This wasn't a great situation, especially for Promise, who was fully aware that the plan was to scam the men. But they all agreed to this demand, and he stayed in the Capitol building in Leicester with Kihar Heya and Kuldeep Singh, as the others set off. Quite what happened next is unclear, but sometime after midnight there was some sort of altercation, a confrontation in London, and the Zimbabwean con men stole Daywal's money and fled. Daywal quickly got on the phone and relayed this information to his associate Heyer, and it's at this point that the situation changed in Leicester, from promise staying voluntarily with the men as security, to being held against his will. At 12.19am, it is evident that Promise realised he was in physical danger, and he dialed 999. During the call, 
Promise told the operator that he'd been kidnapped and he pleaded with police to rescue him. At the start of the call, Promise was calmer and trying to persuade his captors to release him. He told the operator he'd been kept in a building for a long time by Asian people who will not open the door and that he'd been kidnapped. Promise then demands the keys and asks to be left alone. The phrases, come over here and leave this closed, said in Punjabi, can be heard in the background. But as the call progressed, Promise became much more distressed, screaming for help and begging to be released. As his cries became louder, he told the operator his arm was being twisted and he asked someone why they are hitting him. A voice, speaking in Punjabi, says, Shut his mouth! Shut his mouth! Promise's screams then become muffled, and at six and a half minutes into the call, there is silence. Later that morning, Christina and Love phoned Promise's friend, Elvis Keswa, and told him her husband had not come home, and if he knew where he was. Elvis was still in London, and he kept on trying to phone Promise, but he couldn't get through. It kept going to answer phone. Then at 8.25am that morning, the body of Promise and Love was found by a member of the public on his way to work at the Central Car Park in Charter Street. But Promise wasn't breathing. Dhaliwal and Heyer were at the scene and were desperately attempting to complete CPR on him, but with no success. Promise and Love was just 40 when he died, due to what a pathologist has described as mechanical asphyxiation. When police arrived, Daliwal and Hayer's accounts of what happened raised suspicions, as their stories were different and the two were arrested. Detectives quickly suspected that Promise and Love had died during the 999 call he'd made in the early hours of that morning, and that Daliwal and Hayer had dumped his body and faked the CPR to try to deflect suspicion from what had happened. This wasn't, of course, the greatest idea, as it brought police attention immediately to them, and there appeared to be lots of evidence for their involvement in the death of Promise. As well as the 999 call, when detectives watched CCTV from the Capitol building, they could clearly hear the desperate screams of Promise. Detectives believed there was no intention to murder Promise from the outset for any of this to happen, but plainly events began to spiral out of control, as the scam developed, which ended in the death of Promise. Detectives now had the task of piecing together the movements of the men who were in the Capitol building that night to establish just who had murdered Promise and Love. And with different and conflicting accounts of the evening's events, officers had to go back to basic police work. The fundamentals they used in this investigation were the phone records of all those involved, which put certain suspects at certain places at specific times. Based on their assumption that the murder wasn't planned in any way, detectives were helped as the suspects, all from Leicester, hadn't used special phones during the day, but just their personal ones. Detectives also tracked the vehicles of the suspects travelling from Leicester to London and back, and on to Wales, where a number of arrests were made. After being arrested, all the suspects appeared to be looking out for themselves and trying to cover their tracks and separate themselves from any involvement in their deal or their proper connections to promise and love. But I guess this is what we have come to expect on this podcast 
from such low-level criminals. Detectives also discovered that Promise was clearly worried before the meeting with the men in Leicester. Before joining his friends to discuss the property deal, Promise left a note with a friend, asking it to be passed on to his wife if anything was to happen to him. On that note were the names Raman and Uncle Singh, later identified as Dhaliwal and Haya, and a telephone number for one of the men. The trial of the men suspected of murdering Promise and Love took place at Leicester Crown Court. The court heard that Kihar Haya and Kuldeep Singh, the two men who were in the office with Promise, who both had 2K invested in the property deal, both denied murder. The other defendant, Ramandeep Daliwal, couldn't have been responsible for the killing as he was driving back from Leicester to London. He was charged with conspiracy to imprison, which he denied. Crown Prosecutor Lloyd-Jones said that both Hayer and Singh accepted that Promise died after a fight in their office. However, each stated that it was the other one involved in that confrontation. A number of tactics were deployed to cover up the incident and the CCTV hard drive from the Capitol building was found dumped in the nearby River Saw, said Lloyd-Jones. Hayer claimed that Promise sometime towards the end of the 999 call, which was played in full in court, pushed him before falling to the ground and striking his face, causing his mouth to bleed. He said that Promise and Kuldeep Singh then exchanged punches and the fight continued in an adjacent room. Kuldeep Singh, meanwhile, claims he entered the office to see Haya and Promise involved in a struggle, which ended with Promise and Love falling unconscious after Heyer choked him in the headlock for at least a minute. Michael Evans QC, defending Heyer, said his client was a man with no previous convictions and a respected figure in the community. I always love that expression, don't you? What a load of nonsense, and what does it even mean? Evans went on to claim that Heyer played no part in the deal, and referring to DNA matching the victim, found on the inner sleeve of his jacket, he said that if he had choked Promise in a headlock, why was there no blood on his sleeve, given the victim's mouth injury? QC Evans further asked, why would Hayer have allowed Promise to use his mobile phone to call his associates and the police if he was detaining him against his will? He said that it was his client who informed the police where to find the hard drive containing the CCTV footage that was thrown into the river after Promise's death. QC Evans contended that the 999 call was a cover and part of the scam, as Promise, although arranging to meet the Leicester men at the Capitol building the previous day, would not tell the police call handler where he was, saying that he didn't know the location. Nicholas Lobenberg, <laughs> for Kuldeep Singh, said that despite Promise yelling that someone was breaking his arm, no such injury was found. He said it was a performance to cover the Zimbabweans' tracks and that Singh could be heard on the recording trying to placate Promise. And Yasin Patel, defending Daliwal, said that he was not in Leicester at the time and had not directed anyone to detain the victim who, he said, had volunteered to stay in the city to help win the confidence of their victims. Patel said, My client is no monster. He's a family man, a friend a businessman. Simon Connolly, representing another Leicester man, B. 
Vikramajit Singh said all the evidence against his client was circumstantial and Singh rejected the claim he had agreed to wait outside the Capitol building in case he was needed to stop promise leaving. David Barnes, representing another man, Carl Windersing, said exactly the same on behalf of his clients. But both barristers said their clients had been involved in moving the victim's body to the Charter Street car park, and they fled to South Wales, where they were arrested with Kuldeep Singh at the direction of Daliwal, as he was their employer and they were living and working in the UK illegally. The jury, understandably, weren't convinced by a lot of the evidence heard. It was absolutely clear that more than one person lied during the trial. Each of the men just looked out for themselves. But at the end of the six-week trial, the jury didn't take long to reach their verdicts. Guilty. Businessman and co-owner of the Capitol building, Kihahea, was jailed for a total of 13 years for manslaughter, conspiring to commit false imprisonment and conspiring to pervert the course of justice. Kuldeep Happy Singh was found guilty of the same charges. He too was sent to prison for 13 years. And Ramandeep Daliwal was jailed for eight and a half years for conspiracy to commit false imprisonment. In a victim statement read out at Leicester Crown Court, Promise and Love's widow, Christina, told how her family had been devastated by his death, saying, Now our lives are dark, where once they were filled with the light of Promise's smile and unconditional love. He was taken from us in the cruelest of ways. We all have a hole in our hearts that cannot be filled. The children wonder where he is. They all miss him so deeply. The young ones still ask when he is coming home, and that upsets me. I still feel traumatised by his death. As he passed sentence, the judge, Mr Justice Jeremy Baker, told Hayer and Singh, you are both equally culpable for Mr and Love's death. Regular listeners to this show will know how much I enjoy a review or an independent investigation into the conduct of any authority who have screwed up during a case. And today's waste of everyone's time holding no one accountable sorry, I mean independent review, looked into the conduct of Leicestershire Police. Any guesses on the conclusion? Briefly, here we go. An independent investigation has concluded that Leicestershire Police followed policy and procedure when responding to a 9-9 call from Promise Unlove, who was killed and later found dead in a city car park. He did not give his name or a precise location, but police were able to establish who the phone belonged to and immediately sent officers to his home address and to the area from which the call was made. Medical evidence provided by a home office pathologist indicated that Mr Unlove had probably died during the 999 call. In the IOPC investigator's opinion, police efforts to locate Mr Unlove, which continued throughout the night, were hampered by the size of the area and the nature scale of the buildings within it. Regional Director for the Midlands, Derek Campbell, said, I would again like to express my condolences to Promise's family and my thoughts with them and anyone else affected by his tragic death. Given the circumstances, it was important that the police contact with him, limited as it was, was looked at independently. No conduct issues for any officers or member of staff were identified and our investigator was satisfied that the police management of the incident after receiving the 999 call 
was reasonable and diligent. There we go. What else did you expect? So what do you make of what we've heard today? I was instantly struck by almost the naivety of the guys from Leicester. It was, after all, a small property deal. Why didn't they trust their instincts that there was clearly something potentially wrong, which is why, after all, they held promise and love as security? Or why not make some calls or carry out a simple Google search to validate their suspicions? There is plenty out there online, from as far back as at least 2008, when an article in the London Evening Standard was warning people to be aware of this scam following the case of a woman in Dorset who lost £100,000 to the con. And why was Promise and Love involved in this minor deal when he was clearly concerned that things could go wrong based on the note he left with a friend? He lived locally, and even if this scam was a success, he must have known that for a man with a wife and children, there were likely to be very serious repercussions, even when a man respected in the community was involved. But I guess we don't know Promise's full financial situation and any debts he had or the details of his relationships with the other expats in Barbians involved in the deal and what his potential commitment was to them or why. But again, if you want to scam someone for that amount of money, there have got to be easier ways, right? And then when he knew that his group were going to rip off the others in the deal, why did he agree to stay at the Capitol building? Maybe he didn't consider the men he was left with were capable of such violence. If so, it was a terrible misjudgment which cost him his life, Christina, her husband, and their children, their father. What a way to lose his life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime at our Facebook group. There are over 2,300 of us with plenty to talk about, so you'll be very, very welcome. And to support the show and listen to 26 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content, including my upcoming speaking engagement in Manchester, where I'll be discussing all things true crime, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. So that is all for me for today. No mentions of the mighty Leeds United after the disaster at Ellen Road at the weekend. What a shocker. Please, please not the playoffs. So until we speak again next week, be kind and most of all, stay classy. Cheerio.